My name is Pastor Matt. I'm the pastor of youth and young adults here. It's my joy to uh, bring you the message from John 4 tonight and uh, today. This morning. Um, obviously, I don't get the chance to preach much, but whenever I do, God arranges it to be a topic that I need to work on. Um, it's very close to home. I remember about a year and a half ago, I preached a message within the series, The Fruit of the Spirit, and the topic I got was patience. Um, yeah, yeah, the same ones of you, uh-huh, laughed then that you did now, so apparently I didn't work on it that well. Uh, but, you know, it wasn't my best quality, but the Lord asked me to dig into Scripture and to look into it. And it's no different today. You see, Scripture is like a lens first. So you look through the lens of Scripture to understand what does the word say? Literally, what does it say? What does it teach us about God? What does it teach us about theology? What does it say about the character of Jesus and how we can emulate him? That's the lens. Then Scripture's a mirror. And it goes right back to us and say, and how do you, Matt Souls, line up? How do you, person in seat, line up with that scripture? And only then is it a window where someone can either teach and let others know about it or where you can view others in the world through it. So if you look at scripture and see it as a lens, but then use it right away as a mirror and skip, or as a, as a window, sorry, and skip that mirror part, it's kind of hypocritical. So, no different. This, uh, this was a mirror, and um, it was definitely exposing my pride. And pride is a tricky sin. I, I, have, I have a little pride devil on my left shoulder and an angel one on my right shoulder. And as I'm studying this week, the, the angel, you know, of course says, um, hey, Matt, you might want to consider changing blank. And then, you know, the devil's like, I don't want to change. I like who I am. And then the angel says, maybe Satan likes who you are too. And the devil goes, you know what, you're right. Oh, shoot. You just trapped me, and I can't argue with you. I hate it when you do that, and that's just what Scripture does. Um, So our topic today, I get enemies. And the question to ask with enemies is this, who do you hate? Now, some of you went, I don't hate anyone. Okay. Um, And right, if you're like me, you probably didn't think of a single particular person. I tried long and hard to go through like my Rolodexes of people that like, okay, who do I hate? Like, what's this one? Like the best I could think of is this one guy I met in the Dominican Republic and we didn't see eye to eye about like washing clothes and he was just annoying. It was like such a random story. I'm like, do I hate him? No, it's just annoying and it never got resolved. I don't know. Who do I hate? If you're like me, you thought of a group. I hate people who, blank. I hate this group with their agenda, with their ideologies, with their morals, with, you thought of a group. I did. And so the question is, is it okay for us to hate? And so let's, let's clarify hate. Hate defined is intense and passionate dislike, having, this is one I like, having a strong aversion to, or dismissing a person's value based on their traits, actions, or ideals, even actions towards you. And see, in our world today, we can hate groups and totally get away with it. It is the norm. The world says, oh, you're part of that group? 
it is a-okay for me to hate you. It, it is acceptable for us to think that way. But unless we are intentional about seeking to be like Christ, we can have that same mindset because, again, that pride, it's such a tricky sin. It just comes through the back door and says, no, 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 no. It's okay for you to hate that person, which really just represents a group. Now, disclaimer, I have no agenda of assigning a group to us like as a group. I don't, I don't want to soften you towards any group in particular. I don't have a political party in mind. I don't have like, I don't have a group in mind for you. It might not, it might not even be a group that anyone would know. Like it could be um, a subset group of drivers who despite your best effort to drive quickly and rapidly, they catch up to you at the next light without trying. My two agendas are this, to have us glorify God in all of his grace and mercy towards us personally. Jesus is going to interact with someone that by all human terms, he should never show grace to. And God does the same with us. So I want us, one, to be in awe of Jesus. And number two, I want us to look at Jesus's life and challenge us to be like him in every way scripture portrays him, regardless of how uncomfortable that may be. And I think Jesus is trying to get us to see past groups and to see individuals just like he did with Nicodemus, see past the Pharisees and see Mr. Nick, just like he did with the Samaritan woman, see past the Samaritans and see the woman of Samaria that had a very real need. Jesus said, lift up your eyes, the fields are white for the harvest. He did not see individuals as weeds to step over, but as souls to harvest. So today, we're going to look at John 4, so if you have your Bibles or your device or your eyes, it'll be up here. We'll be in John 4, starting in verse 46, and it starts like this. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. So let's get in context of why we're here in, in this passage. To be totally honest, I've looked past this passage until this week. Because right after Matthew 4, the first part with the woman of Samaria, it's such a deep and heavy passage, and there's like wow, Jesus is the true water and you believe and it's just, oh my goodness, he told her everything about her life and it's so deep. And then we get these like five verses that in my head I thought, oh, this is when he heals the centurion's son and said, just go like your son's already well. Totally different passage. Who knew? So Jesus came back to Galilee and in verse 45, it said, before this verse, it says, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So the people Jesus came to this time, they were some of the ones that were in Jerusalem exchanging and buying things where Jesus flipped the tables and drove out the money changers. So they benefited from Jesus's first signs, and, and they didn't quite believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but they kind of had a, you know, huh, who is this guy? I'm at least intrigued, and we're going to like let him be around here. So they welcomed him as a healer, as a wise man, but they did not actually have faith. And we know that because in John 2, Jesus says this, he, Jesus, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to wear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. And this is the third of the accounts that follow that proves. So right after that, Jesus meets with Nicodemus, and he knew exactly what Nicodemus needed. 
He met with a Samaritan woman, and he knew exactly what the Samaritan needed. He looked right through her heart, and he's going to look at this guy and knows exactly what this guy needs. So let's see again how it plays out. Who is this guy? Verse 46, the second part, it continues. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Okay. This story is all about the guy that came to see him. We could just glaze past this. Oh, an official. All right. This official is a politician that represents a party that opposed everything the Jews hoped for. So let's, I want to I dive into who this guy actually is and why it's crazy that he's walking up to Jesus and it's going to be crazy that Jesus is going to do anything for him. So the, the word official literally means a king's representative. And so we should ask, well, what king does he represent? He represents Herod Antipas. Really struggle with that word. Now, it's not the Herod. If you remember the birth of Jesus, there was this king named Herod that feared Jesus and killed a whole bunch of babies two years and under. It's not that Herod. That same Herod that killed the babies, he also had his first wife killed and he had two of his sons killed because he was afraid they were going to usurp the throne. But this Herod is that Herod's son. And they're going to be quite similar. So it like, goes on to why else Jesus would not like Herod. I can think of like two groups that Jesus actually insulted in his entire ministry, and Herod is one of them, or guys. In uh, Luke 13, it says this. It says, now at that time, some Pharisees approached, saying to him, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And Jesus said to him, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Now, when you hear the word fox, you're probably like, all right, good burn, I guess. Like, <laughs> that doesn't say, oh, zinger, you know. So, but fox, what it, what it meant there is actually, it's kind of cool. A fox to them is someone who thinks himself crafty but can't match up, just like an actual fox. They think they're all that, but when something with real power comes, they scatter away like nothing. That's why they're so sneaky. They don't, they don't try to like brute themselves into anything. They just try to break into a chicken coop and kill the poor chickens. And so what Jesus is saying is, you're not really a king, Herod. And he wasn't. He was just like a ruler over this area, but he called himself king. He was a man of power that had no real power, just a position. And I, like, I have to think that Jesus, who is the king of kings, has to look at Herod and go, what a poser. I'm actually the king, and you're a fox. And so it, like, he just must look super foolish in Jesus' eyes. If that's not enough, there's more. Herod was a practicing Jew, but he was horrible at it. He had his uh, brother divorce his wife so that Herod could marry him. It gets more interesting. John the Baptist denounced that, and Herod had John the Baptist beheaded. That's Jesus' cousin. Not only that, Luke 23, 11, and Herod, again, this is the Herod that we're talking about, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt, him being Jesus, and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe, and sent him back to Pilate. And Matthew also accounts that this is when they put the crown of thorns on Jesus. Now, I, I don't know for certain 
but based on Jesus's track record and his knowledge of man and his knowledge of the future, at this point, he probably knew all that was gonna happen. Like he had started his ministry, he had the Holy Spirit. Like I have to think Jesus looked at this guy and went, that's what this guy represents. It gets worse. What's this official's job? Well, the official's job is to collect taxes and exhort the Jewish people, and while doing it, convince the Jews that it's good for the Romans to have taken over them. Gets worse. This official is most definitely a Jew. It's a betrayal of betrayals. It's brother against brother. I mean, imagine, imagine Russia, all right? like doesn't stop in Europe, comes and takes over America, hires a bunch of wealthy Americans to tax us, to work us, and to convince that it's a good idea to have a foreign occupancy, and they get military protection. A lot of you would be dead before that happens. All right? Not good. Let's look at Proverbs 6. Like, just to show that this guy literally represents everything Jesus hates. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, check, check. Hands that shed innocent blood, probably. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who soars discord among brothers. That's who walked up to Jesus. And he needed no introduction. Just like Jesus knew Nicodemus, Jesus knew the Samaritan woman, Jesus knew exactly who this guy was. It's getting interesting. All right, John 4, 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And John's gonna humanize this guy a little bit. This is a last-ditch effort. Had his son been sick for a while? We don't know. We do know from later on that he had some sort of a fever. And this guy, who was a man of power and influence and wealth, everything had failed him. His money was no use. His power was no use. He probably had access to doctors and medicine. He probably had access to the Pharisees, which I don't know if they did hospital visits back in this time, but I assume the religious leaders of of the Jews would have prayed for this guy, especially because they wanted the power too. So he came to Jesus. And I, before we're like too hard on this guy, I just, I just wonder, and this is a topic for another sermon, but let me just ask the question, are we like this in any way? Do we wait to come to Jesus until all of our own efforts, our own resources, everything else has failed, and we're like, well, I guess I need you now, Lord. Tried it on my own. I hope not, but we have that propensity. He was simply desperate. Now, one thing I liked here is he asked Jesus to come down and heal his son. So um, I gotta give you a little insight into my brain. If I don't tell you this story, I won't be able to move past this. I'll just hear this story in my head. So I was in Memphis with a group of students a couple years ago. You're laughing. And uh, we were at this homeless shelter and uh, we came in to serve food and to get to know the, the, the guys. And they asked me to stand up and preach and give a message. And so this is, this is in the South. It's like Southern Baptist. You know, I was not used to that type of preaching because 
Here, when you preach, you know, you get a couple chuckles and I see your face, you know, you're smiling with me. There, they talk back to you. And so I said something, I was like, you know, and God's gonna be faithful to do this something, something, something. And, and somebody goes, watch out now. And I go, is Will Smith back there? You know, but, um, and they said, you know, watch yourself. And I was like, I'm trying. Um, but that wasn't the funny part of this. The funny part was come down. So the next day we go back and there's another person there to preach and they were prepared for this. I just like, I have to preach. Uh-oh, what am I gonna preach on? Hebrews. That seems right. Um, these guys were prepared and this guy came up and was like, open up the book of Jonah. Opens up the book of Jonah. And he said, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but Jonah was told to go to Nineveh, but he went down to Tarshish. And he made the whole point about how going down was about how he wasn't right with the Lord. He was going down. He was jumping. And he said, if you got the cars and the money, but you're not right with the Lord, you're going down. And of course, like after 30 minutes of a message, I was like, hey, youth group, come here. I got to correct some of the ideologies here. And he said some things, you know, it was just, it was just really funny. He just kept saying, come down. So now that that's out of my head, we can move on. All right. But he says, come down. And that just, that sticks out to me too, because this is an official who thinks himself higher than Jesus, whose Jesus, Jesus is really ultimately higher than him. And he's saying, hey, come down, condescend to me. And it just turns the tables right back where they actually are. Come down to me. I just, I just love that. So let's see how Jesus replies. Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And here is Jesus perceiving the need of this man's heart. It's the barrier to his belief. This guy needed a miracle. And by the way, Jesus is not happy. I think this is more exasperation and not anger. And like, at first glance, I thought, well, that was abrupt, Jesus. But yeah, remember, Jesus is playing chess and we're barely playing checkers. As soon as this guy came to him and, you know, asked what he asked, Jesus, in my head, probably went like this. All right, well, here's this guy. He's going to ask for this. And I'm going to say, would you just believe that I'm the Messiah? And he's going to say, no, Lord, not, not if I don't see a sign. And then, you know, Jesus is just like, could we skip to the part where you just say, I know you're the Lord and I don't deserve it, but would you heal my son because you have the power to do so? No. Jesus says, you people, this is plural. This is one of the ways we know that Jesus is talking about a Jew, just like in Matthew 12, he talks to the Pharisees and says, and the Pharisees ask him, teacher, we wish to see a sign for you, from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And that sign is simply this, that Jesus, just like Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so Jesus would be dead for three days and rise three days later, we get the best sign in the world that he's actually raised from the dead. Yet the official persists. Verse 49 the official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Now this guy is pleading with Jesus. He's desperate and he's powerless. And I'm sure you guys can relate to this. Um, I wanna share a story of how I can definitely relate to it as a parent. 
Um, I've been in a delivery room four times. And uh, from the first time until the last, there's been that time where the doctor comes in and says, you know, everything's good, but... And as the first time, we're like, but, 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 but what? I counted the fingers. Um, he says, but... And this happened with Remy. That he, he's our fourth. He said, but there's a sound in the heart. Okay. And he says, you know, probably go away. But then the doctor has to tell you, like, what it actually could be. He's like, so it could go away in a day. Um, or it could be, a, you know, just a, a leaky valve. Or, you know, like, worst case, he's, he doesn't actually have a heart. And he's got a third lung. And it's making some weird noise. We're like, oh. But... Remy was our fourth. We had heard this with at least two of the other three. Yeah. Lauren says yes. It's good. That's my wife. Um, so we're like, okay. Now, an important note about Remy. He was born at 11 pounds. Like, this guy was huge man. You know. Um, he was big. Like, nurses would tell their nurse friends to come see the toddler that was born and be like, look at this guy. And other nurses would come in. I'd be like, he's pretty cool, isn't he? I was happy. Um, so 11 pounds, man. And you know, babies lose weight after delivery. They you know, got to dry out and all that. Um, so, but he kept losing weight. He kept losing weight. Within just a little bit, he got down, down to nine pounds. Now you say that's only two pounds. That's 20% of his body weight. That's like me coming up here in two weeks having lost 40 pounds. You're going, yeah, I don't think that's natural. You don't look good, Matt. Remy didn't look good. And so, you know, take him to the doctor and a few things go by. And the time my heart sank is when the doctor said what he, I guess, diagnosed him with. It's, it's called this, worst word in the world, worst term, failure to thrive. I was like, What? Like, I, what a term. Like, he doesn't have the will to live. Like, he doesn't have the skill to live. He doesn't have the parts to live. Like, I didn't like that. Um, so, you know, of course, we prayed. We took him for all the tests and the um, feeding tests and weighing tests and this and this. And, like, I was, you know, just to deal with it in my own demented way, I was, like, playing him Rocky songs. Like, you got the will, man. Um, but that was just to placate my dread. And it came back that, you know, they were able, they were able to get him to eat and feed and everything's fixed. And if you know him now, he's the brute of the family. This kid weighs more than his older brother, right? He's just he's a tank. But man, that like sinking feeling. Like I I do not that I do not wish that on anybody. And that's our question. If someone from that group is in pain, do we empathize? Do we see them as human? And do we do whatever we can to serve and love and alleviate it? Let's look what Jesus did. He said to him, go, your son will live. We could, we could pause there. Let's like, Go back to who this guy is. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. I'm so glad Jesus didn't say, good, let him die. 
better he not grow up to be like you. If Jesus said that, one, he's a vindictive God not to be trusted and a God with whom I have no chance of ever being right with. But Jesus loves as yet we were still sinners love. He loves to a point where he sacrifices not just his like will and his emotions, he sacrifices his body to let our sins be nailed to him on the cross. That's the love that Jesus have, has and that's what he shows us here. Now, one thing I'd like to point out. Notice that with Nicodemus, Jesus and he had this long conversation. Nicodemus came to Jesus with a need. Jesus, how do I get into heaven? Jesus says, and they go on and on and on. He goes to the woman of Samaria. The woman of Samaria has a need. Jesus, they go on and on and on. He corrects her theology. They talk about this and this. This guy, he just says, go. Your son will live. Jesus heals him. I'm like, Jesus, this is your chance, Lord. Like, this guy represents everything that you would want to fix. This guy represents everything that you hate. Are you not gonna, like, own him with your truth bombs? Are you gonna, Jesus? She says, no, go. He didn't engage him. He just went. And I think this is why Jesus knew that's not his biggest need. None of it would change until he believed in Jesus. Then it could change. So he met his biggest need. Give him a sign, he'll have faith, then let the rest go. This is how I apply this. I do not get into arguments with non-Christians about their sin issue or evolution or you name, insert anything you would have to be a believer to believe or obey, what's the point? It's useless. And so the biggest need is not this belief or ideology or sin. Yes, sin is a big need and we're all under sin and it condemns us to hell, but it condemns us because we don't have Jesus. The biggest need is Jesus. So he, he points him to himself. We should not say that. It's only about Jesus that we should say that. So in order to meet this guy's biggest need, he just acts with kindness. And now let's look, it says, and this is interesting too, it says he believed the word that Jesus spoke to him. I think John is really in, in, intentional here because later it'll say he believed too, but it'll have a, I think, a different meaning. And in John, when he's talking to Nicodemus, it was all about believe, believe. And when John uses believe, it's believe in Jesus for saving faith or believe in him. But here he just said, believe the word. And I think what follows kind of shows us that this guy was just like, oh, Thanks, Jesus. I was worried for nothing, I guess. Almost like Jesus said, dude, it's okay. Like your son's gonna live. You can go. And this guy just believed the word that Jesus said and he went about his way. And we've been there before, right? Like we've, we've prayed about an interview. We've prayed about a, a final exam, a test. We've prayed about some appointment and it goes great. And we're like, oh good, I was worried about that for nothing. Not like, hey, did God actually do it? But just, oh, I was worried for nothing. So he goes about his way. I do not believe this is the point that he actually believed. We're gonna see that here in just a second. And in verse 51, it says this. So he did go about his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. And he asked the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever 
left him. So I picture this official's walk back home, and by the way, he didn't make it all the way home. He saw his servants coming, and if I were him, I'd say, uh-oh, please let this be good, please let this be good, please let this be good. He, he expected to make the whole journey home. They came to him, and it was good. And the guy was probably doubly floored. Number one, that his kid was healed, like that his kid was okay. Pick the relief. Oh my goodness, that is a great feeling. When the thing you dread the most did not happen or you dodged that bullet or whatever it was. Oh my goodness, that's relief. But then he knew who he was. He knew who Jesus was and Jesus condescended on him brought his power down, and healed his son. Whoa. That's love, Jesus. I think this guy was just floored right there. And it says he was, he was floored to the point of belief. He was in awe. Like the Bible says, the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. Verse 53, the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And this sentence is the best part of the entire verse. He himself believed and all his household. Amen. Again, Jesus saw not weeds to walk over or whatever. He saw souls to harvest. Now, by Jesus' action, did he condone the group? No. He did a kind thing. He loved him very, very well. And by the way, we don't know this guy's future. It just stops here. I have to assume if he had true saving faith, the guy changed. Like we change when we have true saving faith. Sometimes a lot at a time, sometimes a little at a time, but gradually and steadily, I bet this guy actually changed. But we don't get to know that. We just get to know that Jesus loved his enemy in a real and tangible way. And there lies our so what's. And it's not as trite as like, you see a car with a coexist sticker with a flat tire and you stop and fix it. Like, that, you know, that sticker doesn't mean anything. It's not like the kingdom of God is not stickers and little differences. It's can you love someone with the love that Jesus had for them? Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So, so what number one is this. See the soul behind the sin. Just like we don't like it when sin defines us, which by the way, it doesn't. Jesus Christ and our identity in him defines us. Someone is not defined by their sin. We hate when we dismiss or diminish someone based on their traits, their group, their you name it. Anything less than God's creation whom he died for is not Jesus-like love. So every person, every human, man or woman, is someone God created and died for. But then there's pride. And it's a sneaky sin. I call it a pet cemetery sin. It's like pet cemetery is when you bury an animal, it comes back, it's just a lot eviler. Um, you think you deal with pride in like one way, shape, or form, and then it just like sneaks back in like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm not better than this, but it's like, Oh, good for you by being so humble. And pride starts to lift up again, and all of a sudden you think you're better than this, and this is just, it's a vicious cycle. Pride is something we work on all the time. And it's really hard when it gets personal. 
So this year, um, someone was unkind to someone in my family. And as a father, I could have laid into him. Um, but as a Christian father, we, you know, talked to our own and said, hey, it is, number one, it's not okay what happened. I want you to know that. But number two, how much hurt must be in this person that they did this or said this and at such a young age, like, I, you are rightfully angry and hurt. But after that subsides, can we pray for this person? And then ask them, if given the opportunity, could you do something kind back to them? Could you treat them with kindness regardless of their actual action towards you, not just an ideology or a yard sign or anything like that? Could you meet their actual need? And that's the next so what? Number two, meet the need whenever it presents itself. Jesus met that immediate need out of love. He didn't, he didn't wait X time. He didn't make the guy jump through X hoops. He just said, I mean, Jesus just read the whole thing, said, go, your son lives. And it never comes at the best time, but I truly believe that God will give you through his spirit the grace to meet a need in the actual time that it comes. And scripture says this, in meeting a need of an enemy, you heap burning coals on their head. Guys, I was so confused about that for the longest time. I was like, wouldn't that make him angrier? Because I picture, what's that Disney movie with the, with the angry guy? Emotions. Inside out, thank you. I picture that angry guy, like that's what coals on your head are like. But what that actually means is you meet the need and their head is hung in shame. Because they're like, oh, I don't like you, yet you were nice to me. So it, softened their, it softens their heart towards you. And th what we pray about is it softens their heart towards the reason why we're kind to them in the first place. So your neighbor, again, with every yard sign you hate, has a need. Do you withhold it? Or do you go out of your way to organize a meal train, to see something in their yard, to see something whatever that you can fix, that you can bless? However a need presents itself, do we withhold or do we bless? James 4, 17 says, to him who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. And so this last so what, it is one of praise and thanksgiving. I, we can't talk about this message without putting ourselves in the official's place and Jesus in his place and saying, wow, Jesus, you have already met our biggest need. Our biggest need was that my sin separates me from God and without Jesus' sacrifice and his resurrection to give power over that sin, we are hopeless against a holy God to come to him in faith. Jesus met that need way before we ever e even asked and he gave us the best proof in the world that it's true. Number one, he gave us his resurrection which we get to celebrate here in the next two weeks. And number two, he gave us his word, which lays out completely what is needed for salvation. So in just a bit, we're going to do communion. And what communion represents is it's, um, it's juice of some sort and a wafer of another. Um, and it represents Jesus's blood and his body. In that for our sin, his body was broken. Our sin, the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us was nailed to Jesus on the cross and his body bore all that pain. 
And his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins to wash us clean. In communion, as we celebrate it almost weekly, we say, thank you, Lord, for that. And as believers, we get to take a moment of silence and say, and confess sin and talk to God and ask him, how would you like me to apply your word this morning? How am I not doing so great at it? Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me, but I want to move on. And if you're an unbeliever here and you wanna put your faith in Christ, do it and take communion. Jesus only asks that you believe that I died on the cross and rose again, and if you ask for forgiveness, I will give it to you freely. And then partake communion as one saved. But if you are not ready to do that or you haven't done yet, um, please do not partake because in doing so, you declare that you are a Christian. And so after a moment of silence, I'll pray and then the band will come up and they'll play um, nothing but the blood and you can walk back to that pillar, that exit sign or that pillar and grab your communion cup. And then at the end, I'll read some scripture and we'll all partake together. So let's have a moment of silence.